All right, rock and roll, here we go. I turn back to Isaiah chapter 1, and um, we had a couple of loose ends last time that I want to come back to. Um, I mentioned that um, uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, obviously a very prominent book in the Old Testament, uh, it's the third longest book in the Old Testament, and um, one of the most interesting finds of history, this is something that, that happened um, just in recent generations, in fact, some of you uh, remember when this happened. Um, some of us are a little younger and didn't, but um, Isaiah was one of the, well, it was, it was the most significant find of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, I realized that last time I, I should have had some pictures for those of you that have never seen this before. So I want to go back um, to our introduction last week and, and just remind you of the Dead Sea Scrolls and their significance for our study. Um, how many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? You've at least heard of them? And how many of you, if I were to call on you, could tell us what they are and their significance? Okay, see, that, that's, the, that's the deal, right? We, a lot of us have heard. Some of us know the background. Um, so this is good review. So Dead Sea Scrolls, as the name implies, uh, this is the Palestine area. There's the Sea of Galilee. This is the Jordan River. Here's the Dead Sea. And uh, for those of you in the cheap seats over here, um, we've got Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Sea of Galilee. And Qumran is right there. If we zoom in, here's the Dead Sea. There's Qumran right there on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. And, and as you'll notice, you know, Jerusalem is kind of up here. You know, you know, it's up in the mountains, but in a, an opening in the mountains. And so you go down quite a ways. And uh, the Dead Sea is... Uh, uh, 1,300 feet below sea level. And uh, so a very interesting place in the world in terms of uh, the, the, lowest, the lowest spot. And uh, in 1947, uh, 19 um, some Bedouin shepherds that inhabit that uh, land, in fact, they, they're still there. Lisa and I were in Israel a couple of years ago. And uh, as you make that drive from Jerusalem down to Qumran, you still see shepherds, you know, running around all over the hillside. And it, it's almost like... Um, you know, it's 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 not dissimilar than Jesus' time, where you know, it's it's the poor class, it's people that are, you know, right on the edge of poverty, and um, but they run around there and they got their little flocks and herds, and and so you see that even to this day. So the way the story is told is uh, there's a shepherd boy and he is chasing a sheep that has gotten away, and um, he's running around uh, this little area right here, and uh, he stumbles upon. Uh, some caves. Uh, one of the, and you don't know what's actually true. One of the traditions is that uh, the kids were actually throwing rocks, and one of these rocks went into the cave, and they heard something shatter. And that may be true, it may not be true. But the point was, the shepherd boy discovered these caves. So that's what the Qumran cave site looks like. This is, you see, you're coming down from the mountains to this flat land, and then you have the Dead Sea. Uh, the other interesting thing about the Dead Sea is it has a very high salinity, a very high salt content, and, and you've probably seen pictures of uh, people out there, and, and because of um, the specific gravity, um, you know, you float on the water uh, differently than you would uh, in water that, ha that lacks salt content, and, and there's a whole marketing scheme, I mean, there, there are divers that go down and they make all these beauty products and that are supposed to be superior because they come out of the Dead Sea, and anyway, it's, it's a marketing genius thing they're, going, they're doing over there, but anyway, that's not why we're here. Um, so there are some caves, and uh, these caves, um, uh, there are several caves, I think there's 12 or 15 of them that they found, and uh, what was interesting is, uh, so these caves are discovered, and, and these shepherds discovered that inside these caves, uh, there were some jars that looked like this, and uh, to give you an idea, uh, those are about two feet, so they're significant jars, and, uh, and inside them were some scrolls. And uh, so those are, that's where the name comes from, Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, this is just, this is not in your notes, this is just for free. Um, as archaeologists came in and discovered these caves, discovered the jars, pulled out all of these uh, scrolls, they discovered about a thousand texts, a thousand different unique texts. Because what these caves were, they were the secret libraries of the Qumran people and the Qumran's um, there's different theories, um, but um, 
uh, the most popular theory is that it was a group of uh, Jews called the Essenes that left Jerusalem when the Pharisees kind of took over. And you remember the Pharisees, they weren't good people, they were the religious leaders, but they were corrupting the Old Testament and corrupting the Jewish religion. And so several communities said, we're done with this. And so they fled and they started their own communities where they could be uh, more pure in terms of their own religion. And uh, because of the threat of attack and being taken over, they wanted to uh, preserve their scriptures. And so they put them in these jars and they hid them in caves. And and that's actually what happened. Uh, There were uh, some enemies that came in and wiped out the Qumran uh, communities, um, but their library survived. And so that's what the Dead Sea Scrolls are. It's the surviving library of the Qumran people, perhaps uh, the Essenes. Now, what's significant for biblical studies is that 220 of those texts that we're reconstructing are biblical texts, okay? Now, uh, just to give you an idea, um, the books that were found, 39 scrolls that come from the book of Psalms, uh, 33 of Deuteronomy, 24 of Genesis, 22 of Isaiah, so on and so forth. So you get an idea of the representation of the Dead Sea Scrolls as they relate to uh, Old Testament books, um, and uh, you can, you know, do that in your head and you're going to all 39 of those books there. Uh, basically, they have found texts of all 39 Old Testament books except the book of Esther. And, of course, that doesn't mean Esther wasn't there. It just means that of everything they found, they were able to reconstruct something of 38 of the 39 books. Uh, most certainly, um, Esther was there, but because it's such a short book, it probably just didn't survive over the years. Okay, so so here's the relevancy for... Isaiah. Um, It's in three pieces, as you can see there, but that is a 25-foot-long scroll, a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. 66 chapters. And um, many of you came with us years ago. There was a replica of this that Southwestern Seminary was hosting a a, um, exhibit on, and, and so we got to go see that, and it is a sight to behold. Um, not just because of its majesty, not just because we, you know, we don't make books like that. We don't make, you know, big long scrolls typically. Um, but to think that that scroll is older, uh, I say older than Jesus. That's a theological tricky question, isn't it? Um, it predates Jesus time on earth. So this, this may have been the text, or at least the type of text, that when the scroll was handed to Jesus in the synagogue and he was going to read and he opened up to the passage and he read it and then he, you know, the attendant puts it away and Jesus says, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. This could have been the scroll. Or certainly a text that dated to the same era. So it would have been a very similar scroll. Okay. Now they found this thing in, uh, let's back up here. They found this in in cave one, which is right there. Um, so 25-foot scroll of Isaiah. And, and, and this, again, the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and this is what you need to get, because um, you say, you know, some of you geek out about this, some of you say, so what, Keith? The, the significance is our Old Testament that you have in your hand today, okay, you have an English Bible that has an Old Testament in it, Until the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest manuscripts we had of the Old Testament, the Hebrew text behind your Old Testament, dated to about 1000 A.D. When was the Old Testament completed? Do you remember? Yeah, so so the Old Testament is completed, let's just say completed, around, around 400 B.C. Well... That's a long time for errors to happen, isn't it? You have 1,400 years where you've got potential scribal errors, copying errors, corruption. So a lot of scholars, critical scholars, critiqued our Bibles and said, well, we think that's what the Old Testament says, but our manuscripts are so old, um, we're not sure. We're not really sure how reliable they are. So what the Dead Sea Scrolls did... For the Dead Sea Scrolls, we now have an Old Testament witness. In other words, we have books of the Old Testament that date between about 250 B.C. and 50 A.D. 
okay, depending on uh, the dating of those scrolls. So the point is, we now have an Old Testament witness that predates the time of Christ on earth. And so scholars wanted to know when we discovered these, are there discrepancies, right? Are there errors between these older, more reliable manuscripts and, you know, the, the ones that we were using for our English Bibles? And you know what they found is that these Jewish scribes were the original OCD candidates. These were obsessive, compulsive scribes. They were crazy accurate in what they did and and you've you've heard me teach on this before they would they they put in error checking when they would write a scribe so for example um an error checking um protocol similar to what modern digital communication uses to ensure that when you're on your phone and you're doing stuff that the digital communication isn't corrupted there's error correcting built into that code so for example they they would they would write a line out and then they would count the, the number of A's, the letter A's, in the line, and they would tally it at the end. And then they would count the number B's in the line. They would tally it at the end. They would actually count the number of letters into the individual lines, keep a summary, so that after they had copied the page, they would go back and count all the A's and make sure they had the accurate number. And they'd count all the B's, make sure they had the number. they get to the bottom of the page, they do the same thing. It was absolutely crazy. But the cool thing about those techniques that God used uh, in these scribes is when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, what we discovered is that those scribes accurately copied and there were no significant discrepancies between the 1000 AD manuscript and the 250 BC manuscript. They had been copied reliably. So the takeaway, and again, if you don't care about any of this, this is what you need to care about. The Dead Sea Scrolls help confirm the accuracy of your Old Testament to before Jesus' time. Okay? That's the significance of it. Um, now, this is, that's a, um, I think this is, that actually is the actual uh, scroll there. Um, this is an earlier picture of it. And you can see here how it was um, sewn together. And uh, if we zoom in, um, that probably doesn't mean anything to you, but that is a block, a block script uh, which helps date the scroll. And if you were to zoom in on a line, um, oh, and you know what? That didn't work, did it? Um, because my Hebrew font is not on this computer, so never mind. Okay, so any questions on uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and its significance for the book of Isaiah? I get into this sort of thing, you know. When I, when I was a new Christian, I thought, you know, if, I, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I want to be really sure that I can rely on this. And so textual criticism, which is what we're talking about here, is a very important field of study because it helps us to know that our Bibles are reliable. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump in here. And um, so Isaiah chapter one, and I'm entitling I'm entitling the message today the Gospel according to Isaiah, and I think you'll see why uh, this first chapter. Uh, in some in, in some regard, the first chapter is the whole book in miniature. It starts with condemnation, it moves to hope, and it concludes with a future promise of restoration. And uh, in a sense, that's what the whole book is about. So let's jump right in here with both feet, okay? Chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, right out of the gate, um, we just want to remind ourselves that that time period represented by those kings of Judah puts us between 740 and 680 B.C. That was the time of Isaiah's ministry. Now, again, uh, we need to get our bearing and so let me just uh, throw this up for your consideration. Um, all the way down here, there's Palestine, okay? Here's Samaria, Sea of Galilee, uh, Dead Sea we were just looking at. There's Jerusalem. 
Mediterranean Sea. So, so this is our little area we know as Israel, okay, with Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom, Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern kingdom, uh, all of you over here. Um, so we've got, uh, oh, it just died. So we're thinking about right here is Israel, okay, northern kingdom, capital is Samaria, southern kingdom, capital is Jerusalem. So that little spot. Now, do you see those little, da- actually, I forgot to show you my show and tell. You guys aren't too old for show and tell, are you? So um, I brought with me uh, one of my favorite things to show people. This is a 1612 King James Bible leaf of the book of Isaiah. And um, so I brought that so you could look at it. Um, okay, so this is this is one year. This is a printing one year after the King James Bible originally came out, 1611. And uh, it's the title page. And what's cool about this is um, this is how they used to make Bibles. You know, our Bibles are, you know, plain and text and have outlines. They would draw these little ornate woodcuts and they would make them as part of that. There's calligraphy involved. Um, you see there's some marginal notes here. And um, so, and, and you'll notice that um, that is not a spelling error. That's how much English has changed in 400 years. You'll be able to read some of it, and I encourage you to look at it, read some of it. But there'll be some of it that you'll struggle to read because English has changed significantly over the years. Um, uh, I, I occasionally run into people that uh, prefer the King James Version, and that's awesome. Um, I love the King James Version. One of the misnomers about the King James Version is that the King James Version today is the same as the King James Version that was translated in 1611. And that's just simply not true, and this will prove it to you. Um, Because even the spelling has been vastly uh, changed over the years, and um, so we... we, uh, Language changes over time, and that's why we have to periodically update translations. So I'll pass that around, and uh, keep it in the plastic, please, but feel free to look at it, read it. And, um, oh, real quick, I'm sorry, on the back, that's a facsimile of the title page of what the Bible would have looked like. And uh, you'll notice there's all sorts of, uh, you can spend an hour just looking at all of the symbolism put into the artwork here. So there you go. All right, back to the text. Um, so we have a, a time period here, and we note that what's going on at this time period is the Assyrian Empire is ruling. Now, now, here's what I want you to see. The yellow line that goes around this whole region of what we think of as the Middle East, that's the Assyrian Empire. Okay, you got it? This, that yellow line that goes all the way around, that's the Assyrian Empire. Now, you'll notice that within that huge, massive empire, there's one little spot of dotted black lines, and that represents a territory that Assyria does not yet control. And what area is that? (laughs) Yeah, it's Israel. So you can see... You know, I don't know what you picture when you you think about the Assyrians coming in and destroying... You know, you think, here's this nation that's... you know, hundreds of miles away and they tromp across the desert and they come in and they, they ran. No, no, no. They owned everything except Palestine. And you better believe that the Assyrian empires are going, this is a problem, guys. We got everything except this one stinking little region. And we've heard about this Yahweh God. He's nothing, right, compared to the gods of the Ashtaroth and the gods of the Moabites and the Canaanites and... Right, and they, they, there's nothing. So, so they're going to take that, and uh, and so you need to understand that um, this was the political situation of Isaiah's day. They literally are surrounded. They are literally surrounded by the enemy, and you can see there's a couple of regions up there in what would be modern day Turkey that that they did not control. But that little part of Palestine that that was the fly in the ointment. That was the thing that they wanted to fix. And uh, so these kings of Assyria that we learned last time, they had their eyes on the Palestinian era. Okay, so with that in mind, let me give you the history lesson and then we'll parachute into Isaiah. 
Assyria rose as an empire in the, and this is all in your notes, just so you have some context there. Assyria rose as an empire in the early part of the 8th century. In 722 BC, the Assyrians captured Samaria. So in 722, they actually made a raid to come in and destroy this, okay? And that's why you can see that in this map, this map is representative of after 722 because they own Samaria. You can see how the dotted line does not include Samaria. So this is after their capture. That happened in 722. Now, remind me, why why would God allow his people to be destroyed and carried off into captivity? Why would that happen? It was judgment, wasn't it? It, it was discipline. And uh, why was that going on? Why would What would they have done that was so bad that God would have done that? Yeah, they're worshiping other gods. And this, this is really crazy. You know, this is a generation that is coming out of, you know, King David and Solomon and, you know, these superheroes of Old Testament Judaism. And yet they had hearts that were far from the Lord and God continued to warn them and uh, call them back to repentance, even telling them that foreign nations would come in and take over and the northern kingdom did not repent. So in 722, God appointed the Assyrians to go in as his agent of discipline. And that eventually led to the collapse of the northern kingdom as the people living there were taken off to exile in Assyria. And if you want the historical uh, part of that in the Bible, we you can read about that in 2 Kings, verse 18. And you remember from last time, 2 Kings is going to parallel. That's going to give the historical background for a lot of what we read in Isaiah. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah initially sided with the Assyrian with Assyria under bad leadership. Now, let me ask you this. If that was your situation, would you be tempted to uh, form some sort of treaty with Assyria? Absolutely. Absolutely you would. Because, you know, if, if, if something doesn't happen, they're just going to kill you. So under a... Uh, you remember in the book of Kings, it goes like this. So-and-so came to power, and he reigned so many years... And he did wickedness in the sight of the Lord. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, right? And, that, and, and then so-and-so came to power and he reigned for so many years and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. You remember that, okay? So one of those kings of Assyria, or uh, one of those kings of Israel, excuse me, one of those kings of Judah initially sided with the Assyrians. And uh, under, the, under poor, uh, one of those kings that didn't have a heart for the Lord. But under King Hezekiah, who was a good king, Judah joined an alliance against Assyria around 701 B.C. And so under the Assyrian king Sennacherib, he was the last king that would have ruled uh, before uh, Isaiah's death. Manasseh came after him, and Manasseh was the one that actually killed Isaiah. Judah was invaded that same year in order to punish Hezekiah for his change in military stance. So you understand this. The, the original king of Judah said, hey, we're on your side of Syria. We got this alliance and then Hezekiah comes in, and because God told him to, he broke the alliance with Assyria. And Sennacherib says, mm, 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 you're going to pay for that. And so Sennacherib, Sennacherib brought a raid on Judah um, that same year, and uh, he destroyed most of the cities of Judah, captured over 200,000 people. And as his army approached the capital city of Jerusalem, Hezekiah brought in Isaiah to seek God's advice. You remember this in 2 Kings chapter 19. Isaiah told Hezekiah not to fear that God would protect him. So the famous prayer of Hezekiah where he goes in and he prays, he pours out his heart in the temple for deliverance. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down almost 200,000 of the Assyrian army. And shortly after that, um, Sennacherib's own sons murdered him, thus ending his reign. So we see that the Lord spared Jerusalem, keeping a remnant of people for himself and not destroying all of Judah, um, like Sodom and Gomorrah were completely destroyed. But Jerusalem alone was left amongst miles and miles of desolation. And that's the illusion. Look down at verse 8. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, a besieged city. That's the picture there. Because Sennacherib has destroyed most of the southern kingdom, but couldn't get Jerusalem. So that's the reference there in verse 8 to the, uh, the barren land of Judah. Okay, so with that in mind, 
Let's now parachute into the content of this chapter and come to understand why is all this happening. Okay, what's going on that would be so egregious that God would order the judgment of his own people? Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. So right out of the gate, what does God say? He says, these are my people. These are my sons. And yet, what have they done? They've rebelled, right? They've, they've revolted against the Lord. And we say, well, what's, what's going on here? Look what he says. He says, an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And that's a reference to what? They don't know what? They don't know God. It's like even a dumb ox knows his owner's call, right? But God's very people do not know him. Can you think of anything more indicting that this nation, this is, remember, these are the people God called out of Egypt. These are the people that God parted the Red Sea and brought the ten plagues to destroy the superpower of that day, the, the pharaohs and, and the, the nation of Egypt. And this is, this is the people that God brought through the wilderness and was so patient and, and so enduring with them. This is the nation that received the Ten Commandments and the law. This is the nation that God put up with through the period of the judges and their, their disobedience. And now in the, uh, the king era with Saul and David and Solomon. This is God's people. And God says, after all that, you don't even know me. So it's a sad, sad situation. Look at verse 4. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Now, now some of you know the, know the history here. What are they actually doing? What are they doing that, that represents their actual abandoning of the Lord? They're worshiping other gods. Okay, so again, go back to that picture. Assyria is all around them. And, uh, and, you know, this, this is not dissimilar. You know, when we think of idolatry, we think, well, you know, if we go to, if we go on a trip with Jack and Susie to Cambodia and, and we see all the Buddhas and all the related deities and we think, well, that's idolatry, right? Or, or we were to go to, with David Gibson to Papua New Guinea where they have ancestral worship and, or we were to go to uh, you know some Hindu temple, right? And we would see that. But you think about today. They're looking around. You know, Israel is looking around. They're seeing all these deities, and tied to those deities are a way of thinking, a way of living, a way of behaving. And uh, you know, we don't. I mean, we have certainly you know actual other religions that have actual deities and false gods. But what is what are the idols that we face today? It might be a Buddha, but, but what are more likely the idols that we face today? Yeah. Complacency. Yeah. Idols of our own making. Idols of secularism. Idols of worldliness. Idols of ease. Idols of prominence. Idols of fun. Idols of entertainment. Uh, now, are some of those things bad? No. A lot of those can, things can be wonderfully uh, wonderfully um, enjoyed before God. Uh, I love what uh, uh, David Pallison, the author, says that uh, God gives us many good gifts, but in our fallenness we want to turn them into gods. They make good gifts, they make bad gods. And so just, and, and you may think that this is crazy, but th- this is so relevant for us. When your heart goes after the world, you're being an idolater. When there are other things that compete for our love and our affection, we know the Bible, right? We we know what it says. We know where our heart is supposed to be. But a secular world and entertainment and culture and all of these things tempt us to latch on to those things as most important. 
So let's not think that we're immune to idolatry simply because a Buddha in the bathroom doesn't tempt us to worship. The reality is our gods that we we battle today are mostly immaterial gods. They're what Ezekiel called idols of the heart. Now let's get more specific. Uh, Flip ahead to chapter 1, verse 21. Just look down at the page to verse 21. Because he gets more specific. What are the ways that Israel is demonstrating their rebellion? Look at verse 21. How the faithful city has become a harlot, a, a prostitute. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water, your rulers are rebels, a companion of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. What does James tell us in the New Testament, the book of James? What does he say is true and undefiled religion in the sight of our God? Yeah, to visit widows and orphans in their distress. What's James saying? He's saying our behavior, our priorities in life demonstrate the reality of where our heart is. And we know uh, several passages in the Bible, we see one here, we see one in the book of James, that we're loving our neighbor, right? Loving our neighbor, to to go visit a widow in her distress, to defend the orphan, to to care about justice, and, and to abhor the injustices of our land. Those are things that honor God, aren't they? And these are God's people. This is his nation. And they're saying, you know, not only are you not following me, but you have murderers in your midst, you have corrupt leaders, you have... Uh, theft, you have bribery, uh, you're neglecting the misfortunate, you're, you're not defending the orphan and the widow as, as is true, uh, as is appropriate for uh, the people of God to do. Um, do we have to talk about abortion? Can you think of a, of a more horrible injustice? in our country but abortion that that's um murder corruption bribery that whole industry that goes with that so this is the situation this is the situation that's bringing about um god's judgment now what's interesting is it's not like god just said okay you blew it here comes discipline notice Notice what God has done. Verse 5. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw, raw, raw wounds. What he's saying is, God says, I have disciplined you so many times. I am running out of places on your body to do more. So it's not like God says, okay, that's it. God has been training. He's been disciplining. He's been punishing. He's been trying to get their attention for years, for decades. And then, as we noted, because of what Assyria has already done, your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, your fields, strangers are devouring them. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. Verse 8, the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard. I mean, there's, there's nothing left. And verse 9, this is really indicting. What comparison could God make to his people that might get through to them? What is, what is the most radical shock and awe kind of event in biblical history where God said, this is my judgment on your wickedness? What could we possibly think of? Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, can you top that? Fire from heaven that consumes a whole city? And notice Isaiah goes for the jugular here. He says, you're just like Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And you know what? You would be like Sodom and Gomorrah today. You would be annihilated if God hadn't intervened. God held back to give you one more chance. But then what does he do? Look at the next verse. He says, um, <laughs> he says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Right? He calls them that, right? Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And, and here is, I think, the real tragedy of all of this. Because they're rebelling, they're worshiping other gods, they're ignoring issues of justice, they're not upholding what's right and punishing what's wrong, they're allowing corruption in their leadership, they're allowing, allowing sin to run rampant in their nation. And here's the thing, all of that's going on while they're going to church. Well, they wouldn't have gone to church, they would have gone to synagogue, right? Why they're going to worship. They're going to the temple. They're bringing their daily sacrifices. They're bringing their grain offerings and their sin offerings. They're, they're celebrating the festivals. Uh, we're, we're coming up on, uh, on Passover season here, aren't we? They're doing all that. And, and, and here, is, here is the bottom line, guys. God is absolutely intolerant of hypocrisy amongst his people. You know, when, when, he, when Jesus went after the Pharisees, do you remember what he said? Oh yeah, you, like, you guys look great on the outside, right? You're like a whitewashed tomb. You look great. You know, you walk around with the phylacteries, remember that? Those little boxes they would wear on their forehead and their arm that had little mini Hebrew scriptures in them to demonstrate how religious they were, right? The word is on my heart, or it's near my heart and it's on my head. And yet in their hearts, what did Jesus say? You're like a whitewashed tomb. You're pretty on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. It was only an external thing. Think of, think of how much of the church today is just like that. You know, millions of people are going to church today. And they're going there and they're going to go in and they're going to, you know, sprinkle holy water on their head. You know, Ash, Wedge, Ash Wednesday, Ash, Ash Wednesday, just you know, occurred this last week and, you know, people are giving up various things for Lent and they think, man, that's going to make me and God, you know, I'm really draw closer to God. And, um, you know, we're going to do, uh, the, um, the holy days leading up to Easter and, um, you know, it may be other religions. It, it may be, uh, Buddhists, right? That are bringing their temple sacrifices in. They're going through motions, right? It may be other religions that are doing external things. They're giving to the church. They're trying to be a good person. They're doing what their leaders say to do. Listen to this. Verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. And, and when you stop right there and you go, wait a minute. Isn't God the one that told them to bring the bulls and bring the goats and bring the sheep? And, and God says, now don't do it. What's going on? Why is God saying that? They're just going through the motions. They're just, they're just going through it on the out. And, and you know, I think, I think this is a huge temptation for all of us, isn't it? This is a huge temptation. When you come and, and, and appear before me, who requires of you the trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. God says, if that's how you're going to come, I'd rather you not come at all. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. This is strong language, guys. Look at 14. I hate your new moon festivals. I just hate it. Your appointed feasts, they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your, and this, this is so sad. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Um, 
Can we just take a minute of self-examination and just ask ourselves, is it possible that we fall into this too? So, so what does the 21st century church version look like this? It means we go to church. We sing songs. We talk to our friends. Uh, maybe go to Bible study. Go to Awana. You know, um, give to the church. Um, say hey to Pastor Terry. You know, great sermon pastor. You know, you're doing all that. But in your heart, you're far from God. I mean, that, that, is, is it possible that, that we would fall into this? And to think that a lot of people are so deceived because they're putting their confidence in the things they're doing that are good things to do, right? They're biblical things to do. But God says, if your heart's not in it, I hate it. So what do we do? Look at verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Now what is this? Uh, the notes say it's repentance, Keith. That's right, it's repentance. This is a biblical description of repentance. If, if we recognize that we are utter hypocrites and our, our heart is far from God, we know biblical answers, we can recite biblical verses, we go through biblical motions, and we recognize that though all those things are true, our heart is far from God. Here's the good news. There's hope. There's hope. And the hope, as all biblical hope connects to, that hope is accessible through repentance. In calling out, you say, well, God's not going to hear their prayer. There is one prayer that God will always hear, and that is a prayer of repentance. A prayer that says, God, I am wrong. I've been just going through the motions. I've just been fooling my friends and fooling my family. And the reality is, in my heart, I don't love you. I don't trust you. I don't listen to you. I don't want you. You are not Lord of my life. And the hope is repentance. Notice the description here. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. What is repentance? Let's just talk about this for a minute. What's, what's repentance? It's a word that we use all the time. And uh, sometimes we... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think of repentance as it's a spiritual U-turn? Okay. Repentance is a spiritual U-turn. You're, you're turning... Um, I guess we could, we could kind of make it look like a fork in the road, right? You're, you're turning from your sin to God. Okay, you're, you're going the wrong way, right? You're going this way, and you turn to God. You, you turn to Him for help. You're turning away from your sin to God. You're turning away from your evil to Him, uh, in fact, the, the Old Testament word for repentance is just the normal word for turn. It's like, right? And then I'm going that way. And that, that's the word. Uh, the New Testament word for repentance means a change of mind that leads to a change in direction in your life. And that's, that's repentance. So when he says here, wash yourself, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good. That's what he's saying. He's saying, turn away from all of this that you're doing. Turn to God. Clean this up. Wash it. Cl cleanse it. And, and, um, and, and here's, here's the crazy thing. Look what he says. Um, verse 15, your hands are covered with blood. Um, 18, your sins are like scarlet. Your, they are red like crimson. Um, how, how do we possibly 
wash ourselves? How do we cleanse ourselves? Because if we read verse 16 and 17, what we would think is, I've got to clean up myself, right? And if you, if you look at those verses in isolation, it sounds like God's saying, go fix it, right? Go take a spiritual bath and then come back and we'll talk. That's kind of what it sounds like, isn't it? And so the washing, making clean, removing, ceasing, learning, those are all proper things to do in repentance. But the question is, what's the mechanism? How does repentance, yeah, how does this actually happen? How is, is it even possible that our bloody hands, because we are guilty before God, how can we possibly fix those things? Okay. Um, that's true. Let me give you the Old Testament version of that. Okay, because you're absolutely right, Penny. Um, and, and you're going to love this. This is, this is so cool. Um, what does he say? He says, wash yourselves, make yourself clean, turn away from evil, cease doing evil, learn to do good, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. And then 18, and then 18, which clarifies, okay? Yes, we need to repent. Yes, we need to turn away from evil. Yes, we need to seek God. Yes, we need to learn to do justice. Yes, we need to do what's right. But in order for that to happen, God has to intervene. This is not, go clean yourself up, and then we'll talk, God says. This is, you need to repent, you need to turn away. But the reality is, you cannot manufacture the cleansing of your heart that is necessary. You can't do it. You're too wicked. Let me personalize that. We're too wicked. So God says, so, so God makes this demand. And then it's almost like God says, let me tell you how we're going to do it. Come now, let us reason together. And then he does something. And unfortunately, our, our English Bibles um, really kind of butcher it here. Though your sins... are as scarlet that's what it looks like in hebrew though your sins are as scarlet white as snow they will be and what biblical writers like to do is they like to rearrange things to bring emphasis and contrast. God says, let me put the spotlight on the matter here. This is you. Your sins have made you like scarlet. Now, let me tell you about the word scarlet and crimson that are used here. It refers to a dye that was acquired from a little bug called the Kermes bug. And it was a source of red dye in the ancient day. If you wanted to have red clothes, that's where you got the dye. Now, interestingly, does anybody know when bleach was invented? 18th century. They had no mechanism in the ancient day once that dye gotten from this little bug was used on a garment, it was permanently red. Couldn't do anything about it. Don't want a red garment anymore? Got to get rid of it. Can't bleach it. Can't get tied with bleach. Stain guard. None of that, right? Can't do it. And so God says, your sins are a permanent stain in your life. And there is nothing we know that can change that. But guess what? I can. 
I can make it white as snow. And, you know, snow didn't occur very often in Palestine. It's kind of like North Texas. It, it happens a couple times a year. That's, that's what snow was like in the Palestinian era. But you, you know what this is like. We didn't have one this season. But, but you know, occasionally when we get a snow out here and, you know, it's been cloudy and overcast and, and then you wake up that morning and it's blue sky and wonderful visibility and the sun radiates off of that white and it is so overwhelming, it's almost blinding, isn't it? You can't look at it. It's so so amazing, so brilliant, so white. And God rearranges the word order as Isaiah pens it to contrast the permanent stain of sin and the brilliant whiteness of being clean. But only God can do that. Uh, the, the subtitle of the message is of bugs and bleach today. Because there's no bleach to fix it. Permanent. And God says, you know what I can do? Now, now stay with me because this is, this is the important part. God says it is impossible to fix your sin problem on your own. It is impossible to fix the stain of your sin. It is a permanent stain. It is impossible for you to do. But I, God, can do the impossible. And that's the point. And he says it again just to make sure we got it. Though you are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And he uses that same sort of word order arrangement to focus the contrast between the wool and the crimson color. Same contrast. So what is this? What did we just read? It's the gospel. Isn't this what we do? We go through the motions. We're a bunch of hypocrites. We know what's right, and we want everybody else to think we know what's right. But our hearts are far from God. We don't love God in our hearts like we should. We don't love our neighbor like we already love ourselves. We don't actually live in light of what we know. And God says, that's a permanent stain. And it's impossible for you to fix. Isn't it tragic that there are, there are millions of people today, and I'm not picking on Catholics here, but there, there are millions of people today that think that giving up something for Lent is bringing them closer to God. And it's just not true. Because Isaiah is saying, there is nothing you can do to bring yourself closer to God. But God can fix it. And God intervenes. And God can make a way. Now you say, well, how's God going to do this? How is God going to do the impossible, turning the scarlet into white as snow? Well, hang on. Because as Isaiah develops, we're going to learn the mechanism. We're going to learn... What sort of what sort of apparatus is God going to use to do this miracle? And I'll give you a hint. It's through his servant that's going to use very similar language to talk about how God will send his servant to fix the problem of sin. Okay? So that is the hope of cleansing. So here here's the two choices, okay? Here's the two choices. Your sins are as scarlet, they will be made white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. What's the next word? If. Let me ask you a question. Just because Jesus died on the cross as a payment for sin, does that mean everybody's going to heaven? Does that mean everybody is forgiven? No. There's an if, isn't there? Not an if like Christ's work wasn't sufficient. It was fully sufficient. Christ did all the work. There's an if regarding your and my reception of Christ's work for us, isn't there? There's a call to repent and believe. And we repent and believe in Jesus. We're not adding anything to Christ's work. We're merely receiving it, aren't we? We're accepting the good gift that God offers in Christ. And that's exactly what we see here in Isaiah, right? If you consent and obey, if you will turn from your sin, right? If you will cleanse yourself, turn away, turn back to me. If you will come to me, this is what I will do, God says. And notice there are some unique promises 
to the Ju- to the nation of Judah if they do this. If you consent and obey, yes, your sins will be taken care of. And what else? You will eat the best of the land. Here's what's crazy. If the Israelites in the nation of Judah had repented, the Babylonians never would have come in to destroy them. He's given them a chance. And uh, if you consent and obey, these things will be true. You'll eat the best of the land. What's the next word? But. This really sounds like the gospel, isn't it? Here's the offer. God can cleanse you of all unrighteousness if you turn to him. But if you don't, if you don't, what does he say? If you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Now, of course, that's unique to Israel, right? He's not saying that to everybody. He's saying, Israel, if you don't turn to me, then I'm opening the door for the Babylonians to come in and you will die. And just in case we missed it, what does he say? Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's the gospel, isn't it? It's the gospel. I will cleanse you. If you come to me, if you don't, judgment. Okay, obviously there was a temporal uniqueness to this, meaning if they really didn't repent, God would really bring in this nation and they really would die and be destroyed. But don't miss the heart of it. The heart of it is you need to turn to God to be cleansed and forgiven or you will die in your sin. So again, right out of the gate, what do we hear? We hear Isaiah's message. It's the gospel. And this first chapter has given us an overview of the whole book. There is things that the Israelites are doing wrong. They need to be condemned about that. They need to be convicted about that. They need to repent. God makes a way of salvation, of forgiveness, of cleansing. And he calls them to put their faith and trust in God to do that. And if they do that, there is great hope for their future. If they don't, judgment so you want to know what the book of isaiah is about that's what the book of isaiah is about in one chapter and the other 65 chapters are going to just expand that whole thing out we're going to see the same themes over and over and over again and uh, man i can't wait to get to that chapter 53 where we get to learn the mechanism that god's going to use to do the impossible okay (laughs) uh our reputation precedes us, doesn't it? Yeah. All right. Well, let, let's uh, let's pray and, and let's ask God uh, seriously. Um, for those of us that have really truly trusted Christ, we know we don't lose our salvation when we struggle with sin. We understand that. But but here but here's here's the takeaway for today: that God would expose any hypocrisy in our hearts and lead us to repentance. And we have a great God who will cleanse us when we do that. Yes. Yes. And what he says there, he identifies these sins that are selfishness. What he says three times, I, I gave themselves, I gave it to themselves. That's right. You got it, go take it. That's right. And that's going to be the judgment. That's this. Yes, that's a great parallel. Yeah, because the longer we reject God, the more he takes his hands off the wheel, so to speak, and lets our sin play out. Yeah, so that's very indicting. And what's sad is, in our nation, that's what we're seeing. Yeah. It's just, you know, hands off people being given over to their sins, so. Let me pray. Father, will you have mercy on our hearts? We need your grace in our life. We confess hypocrisy. And we know that there is cleansing. There there is forgiveness if we will come to you. Would you give us humility and contrition and brokenness and humility to be able to come to you and know that you love to answer the prayer of the repentant? Lord, we say with the tax collector in Luke 18, Lord, be merciful on us, the sinners. And we know that as Jesus promises in that parable that that man went home justified. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that we have the completed revelation that Isaiah only had partially, but to know that we need uh, need his message so much. Would Would you search out and destroy any any evidences of hypocrisy in our hearts? Will you make us in our hearts to be fully engaged, fully committed 
uh, and know that there is sufficient grace and mercy in Christ to help us to do that. So we thank you, we praise you, thank you for Isaiah and this most timely message. Uh, Might we walk with you with a humble heart. In Jesus' name, amen.